0: Bobby osinski's inner circle i'm bobby osinski and this is a show all about music music production and the music business my guest today is a partner in the talent management company collective entertainment and a founder of the hashtag i Voted festival emily white first of all what would you think of a country that actually made it legal to pirate music or pirate any kind of entertainment content for that matter Well, Belarus passed a law earlier this month that legalizes infringement of copyrighted entertainment from, and I put this in quotes, unfriendly countries, which means primarily countries in the West. Now, Belarus is a really small market for music. It doesn't even show up on the IFPI's ranking of the 62 biggest markets. Labels never had offices there. So this won't affect artists or labels directly. But what might happen is, is that piracy networks could start to operate from belarus and then they could distribute and operate globally but they'll be under the protection of belarusian law now here's the thing you can expect russia to follow suit although it's kind of immaterial because most music piracy operations are based there already before the war with ukraine Russia had the 13th largest music market in 2020, with revenues of about $328 million. And that's a 58% jump over 2019. It was the fastest growing music market in the world in 2019-2020, according to the IFPI. So it was really taking off before the war. If it follows Belarus and legalizes music piracy, though, it could set back the Russian music industry for decades as it would destroy any chance of investment in local creative industries. If you have any comments or questions, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Also, I'm pleased to announce that the fifth edition of my Mixing Engineers Handbook is now available. It's totally updated and includes new sections on mixing and immersive audio, self-mastering, new mixer interviews, and much more. Get your copy at a special discounted price at bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. That's bobbyosinski.com forward slash handbook. You can also find it on Amazon and Apple Books. And remember, you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com. Now, Google has created its own music AI. It's called Music LM. Music, capital L, capital M. Now, this isn't the first music AI. There's another one called Refusion, which is an AI that composes music by visualizing it. There's another one called Dance Fusion. There's Google's own Audio ML and OpenAI's Jukebox. So there's a number of them out there already. But here's the thing. Because of technical limitations and limited training data, none of them have been able to produce songs that are particularly complex in composition or even fidelity. But MusicLM can, sort of. Music LM was trained on a data set of 280,000 hours of music to learn to generate coherent songs descriptions that have significant complexity, such as enchanting jazz song with memorable saxophone solo and a solo singer, or Berlin 90s techno with low bass and a strong kick. Its songs do sound like a human artist might have composed it, but it's not necessarily inventive or even musically cohesive. It can build on existing melodies, though, So you can hum or sing or whistle or play an instrument in and then it could figure it out from there. Or it can take a description like time to meditate or time to wake up, time to run or an electronic song played in a video game. You can even input a picture or a caption and ask it to create music. Now here's the downside though. Some of the music sounds really distorted, and even though it can technically generate vocals and even harmonies, most of the lyrics it comes up with sounds like gibberish. This might sound like an advancement in AI for better or for worse, but Google is not releasing it because of legal challenges. It seems that 1% of the music that the system generated was directly replicated from songs that are trained, and Google thought that was too high to release because of legal issues. And speaking of legal issues, all AI has basically the same issues to be worked out, like who owns the copyright? In this case, would it be Google? Would it be the team that created the algorithm? Would it be the person that trained the AI? How about the person that entered the description? Maybe the person that used the output in a song. What if the material used to train the AI was used without the creator's knowledge? These are all still without legal precedent and still have to be worked out by Congress and the courts. But there are several lawsuits now making their way through the courts that might provide some direction. For now, only time will tell how fast this is going to take off. My guest this week is Emily White, who's a partner in the talent management company Collective Entertainment and the founder of the hashtag I Voted Festival. She's also the author of the Amazon number one best-selling How to build a sustainable music career and collect all revenue streams, and host the book's accompanying podcast of the same name, which happens to be the number one music business podcast globally. Having early experiences in radio at WPCN in Boston, MTV, and with concert promoter Don Law, Emily became a core member of the Dresden Dolls media team before getting into management. During the interview, we spoke about being a tour manager, making yourself indispensable to your clients, how talent management has changed. Getting caught up in the latest trends and much more. I spoke with Emily via Zoom. You have a very varied background, but I'd like to hear how you first got into the music business.
1: Sure. I went to Northeastern University. I mean, I was obsessed with music my whole life. Um, I think in middle school, I was voted most likely to become a roadie, and I did end up tour managing, which is basically a roadie. Um, but I went to college when I was 17. Um, I used to say I didn't know anyone in the music industry when I went, but in hindsight, uh, my parents, really good friends owned the local music shop in town. And I only recently found out that um, one of them is on the board of Nam. you know, so it's just a reminder that like we might have relationships and not realize it. But otherwise I went to Northeastern uh, when I was 17 felt like I didn't know anyone in the industry and uh, really built my career from there.
0: You mentioned about being a tour manager. So I want to hear about that, especially being a woman in a basically male occupation.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I started tour managing when I was in college for a band called the Dresden Dolls. Really grew up with that band professionally. Started with them when they were a local band, kind of on the rise. You know, went to my first South by Southwest with them when I was in college on like a self-book tour. And, you know, the day I graduated college, I did graduate, but I didn't walk um, because we were at Coachella starting a three continent tour with Nine Inch Nails. So I did that till I was about 23, went all over the world until I wasn't really challenged by it. I was fortunate that the Dresden Dolls are, there's only two of them, but 50-50 men and women. Um, our, really our crew was, was very gender balanced. And to be honest, it's not really something I even thought about. It's, it's certainly something I deal with a little bit more now, um, as I age, but I grew up, uh, as a competitive swimmer and that's a unique sport where all the genders train together. So I think I just was always used to working with guys, competing with guys, whatever, so it, yeah, it, it wasn't really an issue. But you know, you notice it like on the Nine Inch to Nails tour when Amanda from the Dresden Dolls and our merch person Bree and I are the only women on the tour and their crew is obviously massive. So, um but it was it was great. It was awesome learning experience and anyone that's interested in touring, I can't recommend, you know, doing it more.
0: Let's talk about your relationship with Amanda Palmer for a second sure. because she was how would I put this? Maybe the prototype for how to utilize social media if you're going to be in the music business. So, what did you take from her?
1: You know, we really figured it out, figured a lot of it out together. I started working with the band, I want to say in 2002, it might have been 2003. And again, they were a local band on the rise, and they were really, because they're a punk cabaret duo. And they were and and they're from Boston. I went to school in Boston and the Boston scene was very rock centric at that time. And so they were really rejected by the Boston music scene and would play art galleries and lofts and you know different alternative spaces and built their fan base up that way because the traditional local music industry initially kind of rejected them. And so a lot of these practices that are now commonplace um, I would totally say this in front of Amanda came out of paranoia, you know, because it was like, she started an email list before people were talking about that, you know, at marketing conferences or whatever. And they were starting to build a team at this time, but she would say to me, like, well, what if you go away? What if my fancy attorney goes away? What if my booking agent goes away? This is the only way I have to communicate with my audience about my music and and my shows. So I think we viewed social media the same way. Um, we were always really open-minded to technology. We really embraced it instead of like fighting it or like suing fans or whatever. And for us, it was a, a way to communicate with the audience directly when maybe the tr- traditional channels were, were blocking us out, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, yeah. One of the things I noticed, her presence was vast for a long time and she's pulled back quite a bit in the last few years
1: interesting do you recall what you mean by fast like what years you meant
0: uh, well uh, right up until uh, i'd say 2018 everywhere i looked someone was quoting her she was doing an interview she was being referred to it was constant uh, tedx talks or ted talks actually and and things like that and then kind of nothing
1: well, that's an interesting perspective because see, I would have said 2008, 2009, but so when you say 2018, that's not fast at all. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like and and like so many artists or talent, that's 18 years of really hard work and grinding it out between 2000 and 2018 and then even before that writing her songs and and honing her craft, right? And I can't speak for her on this, but She also has a child now that's probably about six years old. So maybe that, and also pandemic and she was trapped in New Zealand. So, but it also doesn't matter because she has her audience and she has her email list and she has her Patreon and, and that's, that's what it's all about for the long term. Like if, if people aren't noticing on the outside, that's okay. They'll, they'll come and go.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So that was a great training ground for what you're doing now. Let's go there first. Well, first of all, you worked for Don Law for a bit, right?
1: I did. People really, I don't know, glean up, grab onto that in my bio a little bit. I was an intern, um, but it's interesting. I just replied to like a survey Seth Godin was doing today on the favorite on like your favorite job you've ever had, and through interning at what's now Live Nation New England, um, I did get a job ripping tickets at the paradise and what's now, you know, House the blues and running the guest list. And I I think that was my favorite job ever. I was getting paid 20 bucks an hour as a college student, you know, felt like a million dollars to see shows for free and let my friends in for free. So, um, it was a great experience and I I learned a lot for sure.
0: I remember the paradise, but is that still around?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely.
0: Great venue.
1: Yes. One of my favorites for sure.
0: Okay. Let's go up to, uh, Today, Collective Entertainment. So how did that come about?
1: Well, I started my first management company in 2008 um, called Whitesmith Entertainment. Um, That was after I was at Live Nation Artists, which became Rock Nation. Um, That actually fell apart before it became Rock Nation. So I started a management company um, in 2008. Amanda was actually my first client and partnered with a comedy manager. We were managing Margaret Cho, W. Kamau Bell. We had writers on John Oliver. I expanded and added a sports division in 2012, and then my longtime business partner left management in 2018. So I partnered with a few protégés from Whitesmith Entertainment, and I said, you know, I want this to be, you know, I'm starting a new company, and on one hand, I want this to be whatever you want. On the other, I'm just moving our music and sports divisions over. I've since retired from artist management. Uh, My my amazing business partner, Melissa Garcia, is managing talent uh, at Collective, and... And mentoring you know really great younger managers but for me it it really houses my entrepreneurial work at at this point um we've grown i voted festival into the largest digital concert in history that is its own separate entity but also like my books and podcasts and and speaking engagements um all are all part of collective
0: okay i want to get to those in a second but let's come back to artist management for a second because that's something that's not easy and yet you get into it rather young
1: yeah, and I, I didn't, you know, I, I was ride or die music industry, but I didn't know what I wanted to do within the industry. So I was fortunate to do a lot of internships in school. In fact, Northeastern was actually on the quarter system at that time. So I could like pack in even more or sometimes I would do like three days a week at, you know, WBCN in Boston, two days a week at, at an indie label. But I really wanted to support music in its most purest form or in its most pure form um, and that that was through helping artists and then that led itself to artist management and when I was working with the Dresden dolls um in college they ended up taking taking on management um, and went with Mike Luba at Madison house and I'm forever grateful they made that decision when I was at uh we were at KcrW this the spring of my senior year in college I was in the control room with Luba and he said, "Oh, and when you come graduate, you'll you'll come you'll work for me at Madison House in New York." And that's how I got my first job. I didn't apply anywhere. It wasn't posted anywhere. I made myself indispensable to that band where, you know, functioning with me was a lot easier than functioning without me. So much so that they wrote me into their management agreement with Madison House saying, "We will pay a higher commission if you hire this person." And Luba is so forward-thinking and also a really righteous person where I think some people might be threatened by that, but he was like, sweet, she'll do a bunch of the work. And I learned so much working for him and and working at Madison House. And and like they were such a great fit for the Dresden Dolls because their big client was the String Cheese Incident. And again, this was way before people were talking about this at conferences, but they had built a whole infrastructure around String Cheese. Also because jam bands aren't necessarily like super recognized by the traditional industry. Right. So Madison acid built, you know, an in-house record label, a merch company, even a travel agency for fans and artists in-house PR in-house merch. That's a little more common now, but totally unheard of in the early 2000s. So I really got my management chops, um, working for Luba. And again, he is just like such a righteous person. It's like, we'd be, backstage at Bonnaroo with like the founders of Bonnaroo and he'd be like, well, this is the Dresden real manager, you know? Um, and I, I, I'm biased, but it's like, that's really a smart approach because it allows Luba to take on more artists if he has good day-to-day managers working with them. So really I basically managed the band, but then when I got stuck or there was something I couldn't figure out, Luba was always there. So it was a really great, great partnership.
0: How has talent management changed?
1: It's really evolved into, you know, in the pre-digital era. You had to get signed, as you know, to record and distribute music because you basically had to be a one percenter or Fugazi um, to record on your own, you know, if, and then labels held the keys to distribution. So you needed 99.9% of the time to sign your rights away to do that. And that model I just described at Madison House is now much more what it's like, you know, where managers, well, you know, we always had our hands in everything because we commission on everything. But, you know, we're involved in marketing. We're involved in social media. Um, they're, they're more often than, than not, there's not going to be a label, right? Um, you might be self-administering your publishing through someone like Song Trust, You might be working with music supervisors directly. So it's a grind. And please be nice please be nice to your managers because they work really hard.
0: Management has, has to take on so much more marketing than before.
1: But that, that marketing has shifted, right? Like it's about email lists and the text club and, and social media, right? Or, or for me, when there is radio play or there is press, how do we grab those email addresses and start a database for the artists? It's like, how do you take all of this outside marketing information, whether someone is helping you with it or not, and make it your own?
0: But for a second, let's talk about social because social in general is changing so much and it's evolving. We can already see certain platforms that are declining, at least in popularity. Uh. And uh, TikTok seems to be what's hot now, but yet everyone's unsure if that's the best thing for music. How do you feel about that?
1: I think, well, first... You know, I, I had the absolute privilege of interviewing Seth Godin this year, and he summed up my beliefs better than I did. On social media, you are the product, right? Like tech companies are the most valuable companies in the world. Why? Because they have all of our data. So it's not like the most creative or exciting sounding thing. But artists need to think of themselves as a tech company. They need to be like ant eaters for mobile phone numbers of their fans, for email addresses of their fans, bonus you know, points if you can get the postcode. And I was just talking to an artist about this and and I get it. Um, You know, it's so easy to get burned out and have your mental health affected by social media. And so I was saying to, to this artist, in fact, I, I don't think she'd care if I say who it is. Like I was talking to Cam Franklin of The Suffers and like they are, they're an awesome band period, but like a sick live band. They have very loyal fans. And I was like, Cam, you should just post when you have music out and pin that at the top of your pages and same with when you have a tour and if you have some funding or support, like throw an ad spend behind it and just be open and just be like, this is what's most important to me. You know, like communicating my music and my shows, I need to check out a little bit for mental health. And like, I know she also like smokes weed on her Patreon with her fans too, you know, like find the things that like, you know, work for you, but don't, Don't get caught up in this rat race of like, oh, memes are really hot right now or TikTok's really hot right now, you know, like because you also have to use these platforms well and you're not going to use them well if you're turned off by it. But at the same time, like I said, they exist for a reason. So even if you're just pinning the information that's most important, throwing a little ad spend behind it, but then again, you know, whether it's you or someone on your team replying to as many people as possible with, here's my text message club, you know, here's my email list. So just the more you can retain um, for your own use, the better. Because like you said, these platforms come and go and algorithms come and go.
0: I saw something on your website that I thought was really interesting. And uh, the phrase was, you bring a modern mentality to talent management. So what does that mean?
1: I think it's all the stuff we're talking about. You know, I didn't really realize this until not like later in my career, but not early, like I never really cared about having a hit song. And it depends on what kind of artist you are, right? If you're trying to be a pop star or you're doing co-writes or you're a pop country act, like that's a whole different thing. I cared about growing the fan base and maintaining it for the long term. Um, But it's it's all these things that we're talking about. You know, like I was so privileged to work at Madison I I don't think anyone ever said these words to me, but ultimately I was schooled to build businesses around artists and take care of fans a very close second. So to me, that's what modern talent management is because, you know, like I teach a college class and I speak at a lot of colleges and I I really can't stand it. I mean, I think this is starting to change, but I can't stand it when music business programs are like, should you go with a label or should you not go with a label? And I'm like, do you have an offer on the table? Because odds are you don't. Uh, And I understand, like you know, exercises and in theory and stuff. But it's like, why are we talking about this when you can just start getting to work? And I actually just wrapped up my last class this semester, which was an artist management class where I threw them at the wolves, and they were managing artists, and that's what the semester was about. I'm not just going to have them read about artist management in a book. And I'm just as proud of the student. You know, I told them, I'm like, let's set a goal with the artists at the beginning of the semester. But I'm more interested in how you navigate issues that arise than actually achieving the goal. And I'm just as proud of a student who, you know, was really frustrated when the artist wasn't getting back to them. And so I worked with him on like how to communicate and just being really direct about that. Like, hey, if I don't hear from you by Monday, I'm this is a class project and I have to move on to another artist. And like, it's that, and, and I heard that in a lot of their presentations today, like how much they learn that communication is queen and also just like getting ahead of that. So that's real and modern to me, and not just like pontificating on like, should we go with a label that's not interested?
0: Okay, let's go there for a second, because that's kind of interesting uh, to me. What you teach, so it's artist management. The students then, and, and what's interesting when I've taught college, I've always felt that most people are taking classes and they're there to find out what they don't want to do as much as what they do want to do with my classes it used to be i could see 20 people there and you can pick out okay you're gonna do well you're gonna do well and there's only a handful did you see that as well or in the artist management were people a little more dedicated
1: that's a good question I had a small class this semester, so I was able to work with them on their individual goals, which is something we talked about at the beginning of the semester. What are your short and long-term professional goals, and how can I help you achieve that through the lens of artist management? Because even if you don't want to be a manager, you're still going to have to interface with them. And then otherwise, I've taught at NYU at the Clive program where the kids are just ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, in a good way, like just all, I, oh, I've been on Oprah <laughs> like <laughs> or whatever. So they're all going to be fine. But I, you know, it's it's all the stuff I'm preaching and that we're talking about, you know, like, I truly believe that anyone can have uh, a sustainable music career for the long term. But they also have to start with chapter one of my book or the first episode of my podcast, which is get your art together. Yeah. Because if the art isn't great, there's no point of going on to the other chapters or episodes. And, you know, we get caught up in promo and should I go with a label or whatever, but it's like, Chapter one, is this your heart, your soul, your spirit, you know, in, in musical form is, is it, is it genuine? That's if you don't do that, there's no point of the rest of it. So I don't care what kind of music you're making. Like if you do that and then start building your audience, you can have a career forever. It just depends on what that means to you.
0: I want to get to your books, but first, what's interesting is you have entertainment clients and then sports clients. So how did that happen?
1: My parents and grandfather are award-winning swimming coaches, and I was on a swimming scholarship in college. Um, so I've always spoken the language of competitive swimming. And I started working with the rock star of Olympic swimming, Anthony Irvin, in, in 2012. So my 20s were all music industry, but I had this random you know, swimming knowledge in the back of my brain, like I spoke French or something. And then so I started to apply that um, in, in my 30s. So it's really because I'm a legacy in the sport of swimming. Um, when I get emails from tennis players I'm like you don't want me managing your tennis career I don't know anything about that sport but it's been nice to apply all the stuff we're talking about to be honest and in my opinion a lot of professionalism to a rather uh niche, niche sport so but it's really it's it's a way of giving back to my family and 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 a community that gave me so much
0: do you approach it the same way with the mailing list and social and everything
1: yes. When I, so, Anthony Irvin won a gold medal when he was 2000, or when he was 2000, in 2000, when he was 19, and then left the sport fairly young to play in bands and travel the world and take psychedelics, and then reemerges 12 years later and makes the US Olympic team, which is unheard of. And ha, I would rarely say this about an elite athlete, but um, he's a sprinter and he had the worst start I've ever seen in my life at the Olympics in the free. And so he got fifth, which is actually amazing. But the media was kind of disappointed in, in that because they loved, you know, the story of him. And so I emailed him to his website. I'd never done anything like that. I said, this is my company and this is my background in the sport. I have a bunch of ideas if you want to sit down. And he's like, oh, I'll be in New York in a few weeks. We sat down. He, again, he'd, come, he'd just come off of all this media attention. And he said, the next thing I want to do is compete on the world cup circuit and go to all these continents, but I don't know how I'm going to pay for it. So I'm just going to throw my expenses on a credit card and hope I win some prize money. And I was like, well, you, if you were a band who got like a last minute European tour, we would do a Kickstarter. And he said, what's that? And so I took it to Kickstarter they rejected it because they don't work in sports. Um, so we did it with Indiegogo and the fans loved it. They were following him around the world. You, we obviously can't prove this, but he competed really well. And I'd like to think the mental, weight off your shoulders of not having to win for prize money helps with that he broke an american record Uh, we had brands giving him free stuff and got really into it and so yes email list merch but people hadn't really done that with a swimmer before so it was a very similar approach
0: that's cool Like that. yeah okay let's talk about your books uh let's go to the first one interning 101 so how did that come about
1: I did not set out to be an author. I felt like I was teaching a lot of basics to my interns at my management companies over and over. And I thought, if I write like an interning handbook for our company, like then maybe they can read it and then they can work on higher level things, which they want and it was great. Um, and I had a couple of great interns one summer and I said, hey, if I turn this into a how, you know, 100 page how-to book for you and your classmates, would it, would it be helpful? And it, and it was like, yes, so I did. And so that was my first book. And um, yeah, like it's a course book all over the place. Then Shorefire gives it out, you know, to all their interns. So I'm thinking in all my non existent spare time, I'm thinking about evolving it further because um, it's really, it's really kind of modern office basics 101, like keeping it all in yourself together. So I meet people of all ages that need, and I get it, that need to learn this stuff because it's like, I was just going to date myself and say instant messages, but you know what I mean? Like it's Facebook Messenger and social media and email and text and Slack. And so it's a lot, whether you're 20 or a hundred.
0: Yeah, we have the same thing with assistant engineers in the studio where there's several manuals for them. And in some of my books, it's the same thing. It's a how-to. And then that evolved because there's not as many assistant engineers in commercial studios because there's not as many commercial studios but what happened is they all started to become assistants to producers. So it, it was the same thing, only slightly different. It evolved.
1: So. And, well, and, and your world is such an example of that, you know, like are you listening and observing and learning or are you interrupting and getting in the way? Right. Um, that's so applicable to, to studio work. And i I've managed producers that have gone through that. And I know like we're not going to Berkeley and all these great schools to learn how to take the recycling out. But I, I've I've worked with major producers that are like, oh, that one kid just wouldn't shut up. Yeah. But that other kid noticed that the recycling was overflowing and, and quietly took it out. And that was like so nice and so helpful, yeah. you know. So that's I think that's part of what we're both saying, yeah. you know, is, is just take it all in.
0: Yep. Your current book is how to build a sustainable music career
1: and collect all revenue streams.
0: Okay, yeah, good. That's important too. It is. How did it come about?
1: Musicians kept wanting to get coffee and pick my brain and I was having the same conversations over and over. So I thought, why don't I write this down for everyone? And then I'm no longer doing artist management, but the last few artists I, I took on, I was finding money for them left and right. And I'm like, okay, if this is happening to national and international acts, what about everyone else? I do feel that the information in the book is out there. I've just never seen it put in order from recording to release or creation to execution. And the music business was set up like in the 1950s or whatever to confuse artists and then became even messier as those systems shifted to digital. So my point is, if you are trying to teach a student you know something that was set up to be confusing out of order, that would be like trying to teach a kid multiplication and division before you teach them addition and subtraction. And I've definitely mentioned this to conferences. Um, I'm like, can't we just do the panels in order? Because otherwise, like, you know, you're speaking at South by Southwest and you see artists in the audience spending a lot of money to be there, being like, this is what sound exchange is. Okay, this is what PR is. And just grasping at nuggets of information. And the response um, is understandable. Like, um, oh, well, this person, you know, Bobby couldn't come until Sunday and you couldn't come until Thursday or whatever. So I I really tried to solve that problem and just kind of quietly released it um, in March, 2020. And um, it's an Amazon number one bestseller and just
0: keeps going. But I
1: think what um, is most heartwarming to me is how often musicians not only post about it, but push it on other musicians. Like Mm -hmm. I really felt like if this helps one musician, then awesome. But to see that is um, really, really rewarding.
0: One of the things that I've noticed about musicians being one, I know the mentality. Musicians want to be musicians. Artists want to be artists. They want to create. And anything beyond that is difficult. I think it's the rare artist that actually gets into business and understands it and wants more and can handle all of that input from different places, varied places. But some of these things, you have to be careful how you present it or else their eyes glaze over. And just the terminology, branding is one thing you hear branding all the time. But you mentioned branding to an artist and you're gonna get that eye glaze. Totally. So how do you approach that?
1: I I mean, this is pretty arrogant, but I don't think the information has been presented to them in a clear manner. And I also think that I figured out all this stuff by navigating it, right? By Starting with Amanda as an intern and starting my own management companies and trying every platform and figuring out where money is. So, um, again, some of these unsolicited testimonials I get from musicians are like, I feel like we were having a long dinner and then a nightcap, and you're just telling me how it is. Like, one of my regrets in life, my only regret in life is not taking AP English, but people tell me that I write in a very conversational tone. And I truly believe that the book covers the entire modern music industry. And there there are definitely entire books on each chapter. But like, for example, I feel very passionately that I want songwriters to be able to, to simply define music publishing and also know how to collect on it. You know, like I'm constantly preaching this at conferences and to my students. If you want to go read a book about music publishing and memorize every sub revenue stream within that, have at it or keep it on the shelf, but it's more important to me that you know what it is and you know how to collect on it in full. And so that's really the point of my book. If you want to do a deeper dive, great, but I think that's where the eyes glazing over, you know, glazing over happens a little bit. And I am i mean, I, I'm i classically trained. I mean, I, that sounds better than this, but I, I was classically trained in piano as a kid and took guitar lessons and stuff, but I'm not really a musician, but I did spend a lot of time on tour buses with musicians and managing artists and, and really like in the trenches with everyone. So I do feel that I am able to communicate clearly.
0: What's the best piece of advice that you either received or you learned along the way?
1: Well, you get asked that question a lot from different perspectives, um, for young people trying to enter the industry. Um, I kind of already said this, but make yourself indispensable. Um, and again, that has way more to do with listening, observing, reading every email from the bottom up, you know, not doing what you think you should do, but I I want people to be themselves, but also you need to fit into the company culture and and what needs to be done. And, you know, when I, when the Dresnol played my school in college and I introduced myself to Amanda at the merch table and asked, you know, well, or I said, let me know if you ever need help with anything. She said, can you come over tomorrow? She has a very aggressive piano style of play. And this sounds quite, To me at this point, but um was writing like a hundred emails a day because they didn't really have a team yet. And so she had developed tendonitis and said to me when I came over the next day, she was like, Can you take dictation for me? Can you help me write these emails? And like no one's going to these great schools to learn how to take dictation, but I did it well, I did it with joy. And it turns out um there's no better way to get inside your boss's head or a band's head. A band is a business than by taking dictation, you know? So yeah, you have to make yourself indispensable. And then I think on, on the artist and industry, end. I've said this before about artists, but again, you have to build up your own database, right? Like I'm jumping around a little bit, but I hear from like the number one question I get at colleges is, is like, what do you wish you would have known when you were 20? Everybody's looking for some like magic silver bullet. And I just said, uh, but I did finally come up with something which is like, make sure you have your own database going on because especially when you're younger, I was so excited to meet industry people. Like I couldn't imagine like not remembering them. Uh, But now I've been doing this for 20 plus years or whatever and have a massive network. And like we talked about, social media platforms come and go. So you need to build your own database of everyone that you come into contact with. And I don't think I had that approach when I was younger, like I said, because I was excited about meeting people and I couldn't imagine not remembering them. But also because I didn't consider myself talent and that's still something I'm becoming a little more comfortable with. I was always like a behind-the-scenes person. But yeah, building up that database for yourself is the best advice I can give.
0: You can find out more about Emily at collectiveentinc.com, all one word. That's collectiveentinc.com and then forward slash emily-white. That's collectiveentinc.com forward slash emily-white. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Remember that you can learn all about the latest in music, audio, and production news when you sign up for my newsletter at bobbyosinski.com. There, you'll also find out about openings for my latest online classes and special events. That's bobbyosinski.com listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to BobbyOsinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to BobbyOInnerCircle.com, or you can find it on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At BobbyOsinski.com and BobbyOInnerCircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time.